Good morning, guys. Today is a very exciting day because for the first time since COVID, we are going out as a church uh, for lunch after the service. So it's um, if you can make it, come in if you want. Um, we span, spun a wheel last week to decide, and we are going to be going to the Panera in Maryville over by the Portillos. So if you can make it out, we'd love to have you. Um, and maybe you don't feel super comfortable around everyone here, or you're new, but I'm going to give you a little secret. Um, this church is only five and a half years old, which means every single person in this room felt that way at some point in the last five and a half years. So we've been there, we get it, and we want to welcome you to lunch with us. Um, we'd love to have you guys. Um, so we'll just all meet over there uh, after the service is over, if you can make it. Um, if not, we will have another one the first week of next month. So you can catch us then. Um, if you're new with us and uh, we would love to connect with you after the service, we have a guest service area over by our One Cup Cafe uh, where we have a gift for you and we can answer any questions you might have about the church. Um, so come see us back there um, or if you would prefer you can also connect digitally by texting the word here to 219-233-2311 and we'll reach out at some point this week. So uh, we're glad to have you guys here. Um, for everyone in the church, we do have a serve opportunity coming up. Um, if you've been here for a while, you know that we love our MIS school and our teachers. And so we're going to be putting together goodie bags for the teachers in the upcoming month or so here. So if you want to be a part of that, come find me at guest services as well so we can get your name down as we're planning that um, serve opportunity. So, um, and then lastly, I just want to thank you guys who give to the vision and mission of Rethink Church. Um, we're so glad that um, your gifts are, can be used by the Lord, um, not just on Sunday mornings, but in the community, doing the things that we care about and loving on people. So thank you guys for that. Um, th there are two ways to give here at Rethink Church. You can either give at the back in the black box by the door, or you can give online at rethinkchurch.cc. We're so glad you guys are here this morning, and we hope you enjoy the service. Well, welcome to church, where we watch random things like nature videos last a couple weeks ago. Now we're watching Mary Poppins. But my name is Mark Godoy, back to the menu. Uh, I'd love to come with you. So here's the deal. You take the same clips, you put a different soundtrack on it, complete, communicates a completely different sound or message, right? The same is true with God. We can look at God in one way, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, and you're wondering, like, hey, where will we be? Probably in Ephesians for a while, but Ephesians chapter 5, and we're, we're going to look at something, and it's one thing to say, like, the soundtracks that we play shape the way that we look at life, right? John Acuff, who's an author and a business leader, he says the soundtrack is something that you automatically play when you hear something. Like, when you think of a person, what's the soundtrack you play? When you think of yourself, your job, your career, what's the soundtrack you're playing? Um, he has a line in the book, and it's ironically called Soundtracks, and uh, this is what I'm taking my eighth graders through right now, that if you can doubt, then you can wonder. And if you can wonder, then you can strive. And if you can strive, then maybe someday you'll dominate whatever that field is. So while you're doubting, keep straining towards certain things. And don't let that one soundtrack be the thing that holds you back. And when it comes to your approach from God, what's that one soundtrack that you keep playing through your head? Um, if we were to, if like 20 years ago, the soundtrack I played of God was that he hated everything, anytime I had, had fun in my life. And so he was there just to like zap all the fun out of my life, right? Um, and anytime that, like, because anytime I want to, like, anytime I got punished, I had to go to church. Does that make sense? Like, like my mom would be like, hey, you need to go talk to a male in your life. Just go talk to the pastor. So I'd have to tell the pastor what I did wrong. 
and try not to laugh because I was like, whatever, because, you know, counseling sessions here and all this. And then pastor looked very disappointed in me, but not really having the authority in my life to say, well, don't do that again. And I was like, okay, whatever. This is where you go when you're in trouble and all that. And so uh, the soundtracks that we play in our life are crucial, and we need to just absorb that because you take that same clip, you put different music to it, you spin it in a different way, it has a completely different meaning. So when I talk about God in a sense, if you wanted to have passages and Bible verses that were all about God's love, you'll find them. If you want to find passages and Bible verses that are all about God's judgment, you'll find them. So think about when you think of God, what are the soundtracks that you play in your own life? Right? And so as we do this, it's going to help us shape the way we approach all of this, okay? Um, often, what we then tend to do is we imagine God the way we want to imagine God. How many grew up thinking that Mary Poppins was a witch who wanted to torture kids? Not until that clip, right? <laughs> When you play the music and you put it in the right motion, like, no, we're all like, oh, Mary Poppins, fun, loving, all this. That's because of the soundtrack. That's because of the way it was format, format and stuff like that. Same thing with God. When, when certain things get like put into different sequences, it changes the way we do this, okay? So let's look into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, uh, and we'll read through this. So I'm going to read in this uh, New Living Translation, and here's what it says. Imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do, because you are his dear, dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sin should not even be in God's people. <clears throat> Obscene stories of foolish talk, coarse joking, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure it's not that there's no immoral, impure, or greedy person that will inherit the kingdom of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. And so, if you think about this, what exactly are we supposed to imitate? We're supposed to be imitators of God, but if we have a screwed up soundtrack with God, how do we imitate the screwed up soundtrack? How do we, how do we imitate a broken or maybe a small version of this, right? Because if you look at the, the, the complexity of God, will we ever understand who God is? Not really. So how do, we, how do we actually imitate this? Right? And this is why Jesus actually came to this earth. And so, uh, when it comes down to wanting, wanting to show God's love in certain situations, it's possible. When it's wanting to show God's judgment in, in certain situations, it's possible. The challenge becomes, how do you know when to do this? And I'll, every time I hear this, and every time I say this, I get an email or somebody responding back, should Christians judge? And I usually give them a blank stare. And they're like, well, tell me where that says not to judge. And then I get another blank stare. And they're like, well, it's in there somewhere. And I'm like, well, if you don't know where it is, then I'm going to tell you, like, let's talk through this, right? So, Jesus does say, don't judge unless you want to be judged. Right? He's not saying don't judge non-Christians, by the way. The judging that he talks about, or how they, he refers to followers, his followers as siblings. He talk, the, the language here is brothers and sisters. So if you look in your eye and you're like, hey, I wonder who my brothers and sisters are, spiritually speaking, people who follow Jesus. Even that weird uncle that you don't want to talk to, right? We all have that one weird uncle that you're like, great. Like, I had a weird uncle who showed up to a wedding in pink pants in the 90s, and I was like, that's strange. 
know if I can respect you. Uh, and I didn't know who he was. And then he's like, I'm your uncle. I was like, I'm not. Like, <laughs> so, I'm not your nephew. How about that? So, <laughs> but I guess that's not how it works. So, anyway, so we all have that weird uncle. But Jesus refers to his followers as siblings. And what he tells us in, in Matthew chapter 18, like, hey, when your brother or sister is sinning, screwing this up, confront them. That's a loving act. And we in the church in 2022 don't want to actually act like that. We're like, mm -mm, no, you can't tell me what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a king. I'm a queen, right? And we do everything perfect. No, you're not. You're actually full sin. And that's why Jesus came to something like that for you. Same with me. It's not like you're less than sinful. Like, no, we all have sin. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to make us better. He came to make us from death into life. And unless we actually acknowledge that, that's really hard for us to like, accept. But that's what Jesus came to do. And so, because of this, what we actually get to into, when we actually start working through this like, this, like imitating God in a true way, then we can start looking at, okay, well, Jesus confronts sin. Jesus actually tells us to confront sin among us. He does not expect us to go out to the world and tell them that they're all sinful going to hell. That's, like, he doesn't actually want the, the followers of Jesus to judge the non-followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? He expects non-followers of Jesus to act like non-followers of Jesus. This is in Matthew 18 where he says, like, hey, just cast them out and we'll treat them like, like basically kick them out and treat them like non-Christians. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, a, it's a different mind shift. And so what we see here is going on is, is this, there's a, a tra soundtrack of love in the Bible. There's a soundtrack of promises. There's a sound, soundtrack of all of this. But there's also the soundtrack of judgment that we don't want to talk about, but it's there, right? It's like if I were to stand on this train track somewhere in America, and somebody would say, hey, the train's coming, and be like, mm, not really. I don't think it's coming yet, right? How long does it take to go from the East Coast to the West Coast on the train? A few days, right? A week, maybe? Either way, though, that train is still coming my way. It just may take a while. And God's judgment on your life and my life, he's been patient. That doesn't mean it's not coming. At some point, there will be a judgment. And at some point, we'll have to give an account. It's there. You can, you can like it, not like it. You don't make the rules. So there's that. So enjoy. Um, that's part of what we get to do, right? Because we're not God. And so that's part of this process. So what does it look like for, for us to imitate God's love in this world? Part of it is actually understanding that there's, a, there's an example in John chapter 8 we're going to work through of how to actually confront love, confront issues in a full capacity, right? To bring all the soundtracks together and say, this is what it's going to look like. So one way to think about these soundtracks is if you were to listen to a jazz ensemble, you get the whole sound, right? If you were to just take the, the, the string instruments of that jazz ensemble, you get one piece of it, but you get a full picture of it. Not really, it sounds weird, right? You're like, that's strange. Same with the brass and the drums and all that. By the way, jazz drums, like, if they're done great, awesome. If they're done poorly, you're like, this is boring. What in the world, right? Like, that's just part of that process. So, but when you bring it all together, and this is part of that thing that we get to do in the scriptures, is that we get to bring the whole thing together. And we get to see this in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he is, uh, he goes up to the Temple Mount, and he's hanging out there, and a group of guys bring a lady who's caught in adultery. I'm just going to ask this question very clearly. 
How many people does it usually take to have the act of adultery? At least two. Two close. So they're not out for justice. Does that make sense? They're not out for justice. They're actually just wanting to make a point to this lady and most likely trying to trap Jesus and say, oh, look, he did whatever. So Jesus, like, hears them, but he's like, he kind of ignores them at one point. He stoops down and he starts drawing into the dirt in the sand. We don't really know what he's doing. It would be awesome if somebody took a picture. But that didn't happen. So um, I'm assuming he's doing like a grocery list. So this, all that kind of stuff. But he doesn't. No one says it, and, but for some reason, John points this out. So it has to be important for some reason. So, Jesus is doing this, and the, the guys are questioning him, what should we do? He has every ability, by the way, like he has every ability of walking away. Like, I was on the Temple Mount, it's easy to get lost. Several, several football fields worth of space up there. He could have walked away and avoided it. But he doesn't. He stays in this messy situation. That's a one clue, though, how we should actually respond. As followers of Jesus, how do we actually imitate this? You can't flee every messy situation. At some point, when the mess happens in life, which, by the way, it does, you got to stay. Right? So what he does here is he's brilliant. He says, okay, go to, go to those of you who are without sin, throw the first stone. And what happens? The older men start dropping their stones down to the younger men, and they leave, and they walk away. To the point where it's just Jesus and the lady. Now, Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've accepted that he is sinless. By his standard, who's the only person that could throw a stone? Himself. So, he asked the question, who are your accusers? And she's like, they're not here. He said, well, then I don't accuse you, I don't condemn you either. And so... He, he has this conversation with her, and he leaves it at that. He extends grace in such a beautiful way. He protects the vulnerable in that moment. He understands what's going on here. He knows that this crowd is not up for like, actual justice, but he stays in it. And then he, leave, he doesn't leave it there. He pushes it even further. And notice what he says here to her. Then leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sure you get caught up in your emotions. I'm sure that sugar daddy just like, you know, helped you out and all that. And just like, it was a moment of weakness for you. No, what's he said? Calls it out. Yeah. Leave your life of sin. Not pursuing your wild hills and all this other stuff, which we try to like, somehow in America, we just try to justify everything. We have words for things that like, seriously, just say what, what it is. Like, I, I, in my classroom, I'll look at a kid, I'll be like, I need interpretation. Help me out here. Like, cap, no cap. L, like, I called an L teacher today, or not today, but Friday, and so I said, well, you're an L student, which I didn't know that meant you're a loser, so I was like, well, sucks be you, so how about that? Uh, but anyway, like, we have all these words and things and stuff like that, and so what we actually end up doing is we just, like, Jesus calls it out what it is, but notice the order here. Extend grace, and then speak truth. Don't leave the mess. And a lot of times when we do as Christians, things aren't the way I want them, and so I just leave, right? Uh, you might want to call it white flight, you might want to call it whatever you want to call it, where you throw names around it, but for some point, we have to get to the point where we stay in the mess. We cannot just continually have bubbles of Christianity that ignore the world around us, right? 
How do we actually transform the world if we're just isolating ourselves? And that's part of this process. Jesus stays in the mess, and then he extends grace, but he speaks truth. And this is what it looks like to bring the full capacity of scriptures together and say this is what it looks like for us to engage in this. So when we imitate Christ, this is what we're doing, right? Um, and so when we have this polarizing world that wants to constantly have, have us choose like one or two options, Pepsi, Coke, right? Sykes, Sox, Cubs, Democrat, Republican. Jesus models this for us. Find the middle ground and just walk his way. He's not saying compromise, by the way. He's just saying, I don't choose these two options. I'm just going to go with my own way. And when he does this, all of a sudden, like, uh, he gets pulled into these, these different categories and, and political agendas and political uh, realms and stuff like that, religious and all this. It's hard for us to get our minds around because we have separation of church and state. In Jesus' day, everything was together. It was all there. And so he has a lawyer at one point come up to him and ask him, hey, what's the most important commandment? Well, what they're actually not asking is the, not the top one. Everyone agreed on the top one, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. What they're actually asking, what, how do you view the second most important commandment? And what does that look like for you? And different political, you can imagine, we would never do this in America, where we take scriptures and we weaponize parts of the scripture for our own agenda. That doesn't happen in America, we get it. So, maybe we could put ourselves in a different position as well, but we have these different political leaders and different political groups in, in first century Jewish culture. You have the zealots who would say, you cannot worship anything or have any idols or anything like that. So they never carried Roman coins. Uh, they hated the Romans so much that they killed them, like guerrilla warfare type style. Their name, this, uh, the zealots came out to this, this dagger they carried called the Sicari. It was a curved dagger that could hide under their cloaks, stabbed the Roman official, and then walked in the crowd and no one knew who it was. And I've been in Jerusalem where it's like, yeah, I can see this happening. Like, the crowd's pressing, you have these small little narrow alleys, and you're like, we get this, we get this, this is how this works. But then you also have the, um, the, the, the priestly generate, the priestly people who would say, no, no, it's this, this is the most important thing. So they're all getting together, hearing this, what Jesus is gonna say, and they're trying to trap Jesus and put him in the category. And what he says is brilliant because he says, well, actually, this, the, the, it's not the second most important. It's the same level. He doesn't lower to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. When he says, love, the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, he marries these two commandments together. They become equally important. That you can't, you can't hate other people and say you love God. So then the lawyer's like, well, who's my neighbor? How does that work? He wants to make it look like, yeah, yeah, just love the people you like. And then Jesus tells this parable, this, this very famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a way of saying to the, to the lawyer asking this question, the person you despise the most, that's who you need to love the most. Let's look at this and let that sink in. The person you despise the most Maybe some of you can picture that person right now. Anyone have that image? According to Jesus, that's who you love the most. Anyone sign up and follow Jesus today? Where you get to like love the people you hate and who hate you. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so when we, we when Paul says to the church in Ephesus, be imitators of Christ, this is what he's talking about. Now you're gonna step into situations where it's messy. 
But you're going to extend grace, you're going to extend truth all at the same time. But you're also going to love the way that Jesus would want you to love. And the people you despise the most is who you get to show up and do this for. And so, when we do this, we model Jesus to people. Now, why does Jesus do this? And why does Paul bring this up? It's because of his love for this person. Um, and we talked through the words of love in the, in the biblical language. But in Hebrew, it's ahava or hesed, which we talk about that loyal love. It's that, like, you're just going to endure whatever you have to endure. Uh, Aramaic, which is the, the sister language, is Ramadan, whatever that word is. It's basically this concept that you can't really describe unless you know the language. Does that make sense? Maybe like telling us, like, post on something. Well, what's that mean? Well, if you don't know Facebook, it's going to come across weird. But if you know Facebook, yeah, yeah I get that. Uh, agape is the Greek version of this. And what the early church leaders decided to figure out Instead of trying to translate the dictionaries and say, this is what it looks like, they would just tell stories. The accounts of what Jesus did. And the accounts of how the early followers of Jesus would actually demonstrate God's love for this world. Because they understood that if you got lost in the details of the dictionaries and the translations, then you'd have nerds who don't know how to do anything. Right? And that's kind of true sometimes. Where people are like, I can dive into these deep, deep words and say, my emphasis on this level is being this. And, and you get dot, like, all consumed in there, but you actually don't know how to actually live it out. And so the early church followers were like, well, let's just tell the stories of how Jesus demonstrated this. John chapter 8, the lady caught in adultery. The, the parable of the Good Samaritan, all this. And this is what it looks like. And here's what we have to understand. That love is something that we are, but it's also something that we do. God's, God's love for us extends from his character. It's because of who he is. Yeah. And so, what it looks like to be, and we've talked about this, there's a difference between biblical and being Christ-like. If you want to be biblical, the Bible, you can take out of context and defend any position you want. Whether it's selling slaves, whether it's demeaning women, like we talked about last week, there's unicorns in the, in the Bible, depending on the translation you look at, Right? So if you want to defend anything biblical, so the goal is not to be biblical, the goal is to be Christ-like. And when it comes to Christ-like love, what it looks like is you're going, to, you're going to lovingly endure something for their benefit. Knowing that those people can never pay you back. It's not for your benefit, it's for theirs. And this is what Christ models for us, right? Uh, he demonstrates this over and over again. Paul talks about this in Romans, where he says, while you are still sinners... Christ died for you. Meaning that while those people can't even come back to pay you back, this is what you get to do. You get to extend this grace and extend this love to people that you don't do. Now, we talked about these two, we talked about judgments coming, or the eight judgment coming. The first judgment, we have to be aware of this, is uh, what we see in Matthew chapter 25-ish, where the separation of the goats and the sheep. The sheep. So sheep are good, goats are bad. It's like, hey, are you in or are you out? Are you a follower of Jesus or not? Have you admitted your sins, confessed your, like, your sins to, to, to Christ, believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and you've committed your ways to him? If you can't humble yourself to confess your sins, then God won't extend grace to you. It's not, it's not offered. It's offered, but we have to, come to, we have to be in God's presence and his, in, on his terms, which means you confess your sins. Seems reasonable, right? 
So then the second judgment is, okay, if you're a follower of Jesus, now what did you do with what I gave you? This is where we see the parable of the talents. This is where John, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this judgment seat of like, what did you actually do with the gifts that it gave you? Yeah. Were your gifts there just to make your own bank account great? Was it there to make you, to advance his kingdom or your kingdom? There are two judgments that we don't like to talk about because we don't like to talk about judgments in American church, but it's there. And we have to be aware of that. And so you're going to have to come to, the, to come to some point of like reconciliation of like how you're going to deal with this judgment. How do you confess your sins, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and commit your ways to his, way, to his life, and accept that grace? And if not, this is your day, or it could be. I'm not going to force you to do it because we don't do that forced conversions in everything church. Um, but the other part of that we need to work through is, okay, let's say you're a follower of Jesus. What are you doing with what he's given you? How does that work for you? Like, which kingdom are you advancing? And what does that look like? And I can't answer those for you. Hopefully you can. I can present truth to you and see where we go from there. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to end today with some discussion. And we do this every once in a while. So there'll be questions on the board. Or not on the board, on the teacher board right there. On the screen behind me. Uh, get into groups of three or five, somewhere in there, and then talk. And if you're scared of that, do it while you're scared. I believe in you. You can do this. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for this day. Thanks for who you are and everything you've done for us. God, I pray you just watch over us and be with us. And God, for those of us who are sitting here exploring faith, just wondering what's going on in life and all this, God, we pray that you would show up in a real way. If anyone is searching and seeking today and wondering how do I get reconciled to you, how do I be restored into your presence, God, God, I pray that they would confess their sins to you. That they would believe you are who the scriptures say you are. That does not mean they have to understand it all, but they're going to trust you and believe in you. And they're going to commit their lives to your, to your way. And God, for those of us who are sitting here saying, yep, yeah, I've been a Christian now for a week, two weeks, ten days, ten years, whatever it's been. God, would you help us understand that we have gifts for us. And that those gifts are used, should be used to advance your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. Genuinely pray this. Amen. Mm -hmm. so